Okay, today's Bible reading is from Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34. Okay, in Athens, it's titled. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are, represent, you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. For you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples but built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and boundaries of their lands. God did did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of our known poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, We want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Thank you, darling. It's my wife, if you didn't know. <laughs> Don't call everyone darling and panic. Well, today we're continuing our series through the book of Acts. And after Acts chapter 17, we're actually going to take a bit of a break from Acts as of next week onwards. We're going to go through the book of Jonah. We're going to come back to the book of Acts at a later time. But so far in the series, uh, we've learned a lot. We've, looked at we are, we've heard that we are blessed to be a blessing. We've heard about the fact that we have received grace in order to distribute grace. We've talked about the fact that we've received the power of the Holy Spirit to be His witnesses. And we've seen in this series the power of the Gospel. We've seen it cross the racial divide. We've seen it cross the social divide. And we've seen it move from being exclusive to the Jews to now including the Gentiles. Um, Today we are looking at um, how the Gospel... Oh, sorry, I'm going to go back a second. We also looked at how it started locally in Jerusalem and we saw how it spread from there to Samaria and throughout the world. Uh, through the missionary journey of Paul and others, it's now going global from this point onwards. Last week we looked at the fact that the gospel is without limits, that it is powerful, 
and that it's radically relevant and able to save anyone, whether they're rich, poor or in between. But today's message I think is particularly important because it takes us from what we should do, that is sharing the gospel, to some practical ways about how we go about doing that. And I think that's always important for us as a church. As we look at the passage today, I think there are a few things that we can learn from, the, from Paul that we're going to get to a little bit later on. At this stage of Acts, um, Paul is on his second missionary journey and he finds himself located in Greece in the city of Athens. And in the first verse that Kim read today, we read this. It says that when he arrived there, he was greatly distressed because the city was full of idols. Now, being distressed, that's a, a pretty strong word. That's not like a mild irritation. Uh, This week, uh, during the week, I read a post on Facebook and it was called Polite Insults. And it talked about how we can give people a polite insult. Now, just hang with me for a second and I'll give you some examples. It basically includes declaring over people things that can be irritating. So let me give you the first example. This is what you can say to someone if you want to insult them politely. May every sock you wear be slightly rotated just enough for it to be uncomfortable. Have you experienced that before? We hate that. It's like, oh, I can't get it to work. This is for the musicians. May every guitar pick fall inside the sound hole. For the teenagers, may your mother come to talk to you and then leave your door slightly ajar so that you have to get up out of bed and close it. My mum was guilty of that many times. May your cookie be slightly too large to dunk inside your coffee. I don't, for the internet users, may your article load that extra little bit as you're about to click on it so that you click on the ad instead. You know, I do that like three or four times in a row and I'm like, Argh. may your headphones snag on every door handle. May you forever feel your mobile phone vibrating in a pocket it's not even in. I can hear it, where is it? Can't find it. May you always stand up from your computer before you unplug your earphones. This one's particularly important and timely coming up to Christmas. May every empty parking spot you see in the distance actually contain a motorbike. (laughs) May you always choose the slowest queue. I always do that. You go to the supermarket, there's a queue with 10, there's a queue with one, I jump in the queue with one, the queue with 10 finishes while the person in front of me is arguing over the price check on the 53 cent item. So I just get on with it. May you always choose the slowest queue. What about this one? May you always step in a wet spot after putting on fresh socks. May you always be one square short on the toilet roll. It's a bit awkward. Hopefully that didn't happen to anyone this morning. I'm going to finish with this one, but I just want to warn you, this one's serious. It's actually not funny at all. Um, May all your Facebook notifications be game invites. It's not funny, is it? Candy Crush. I don't want Candy Crush. If I wanted to tend your farm or feed your animals, I would have been a farmer. Please do not send me any more bedazzled jewels. I do not want them. Those game invites. All of those things, except for the last one, of course, can be mildly irritating. But that's not what's happening here for Paul. He arrives in Athens and he's greatly distressed. The Greek word means to be provoked, irritated and angry. Athens was a place of great culture. Uh, A wonderful city in many ways. But by this stage in history, Athens had lost some of its past greatness in terms of political power. However, it still retained the highest level of architecture and sculpture and philosophy. It was a cultured city and it was stunning. 
Now, if you've had the privilege of travelling overseas to some of these amazing cities, even Athens, you have probably been blown away by what is essentially to us uh, amazing architecture and some of the great workmanship of the world. You may have even been awe at some of the, in awe at some of the work that you saw when you go to those cities. But in Paul's day, any appreciation for the workmanship was overlooked because these structures were all dedicated to foreign gods. Now, Paul was a Jew and he knew the scriptures very well and he was well trained in the Ten Commandments. The first one is to worship the Lord your God and him only. The second commandment is to not to worship any false idols. And so he arrives at Greece, at Athens, and he's greatly distressed. Now, if we were to travel to any capital city today in the world, you will see that capital cities in any place in the world is full of idols. An idol is simply anything that is in our lives that is elevated above God. It's anything in our hearts that takes higher priority than Him. Now, we should never assume that idolatry is just a problem outside of the church. In fact, when Paul arrives at Athens, he has a twofold strategy and the first part of the strategy is that he goes to the synagogues. It says that while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So, he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. So first of all, he goes to the synagogue and then after that he goes into the marketplace and in both those places he's dealing with the same issue and the issue is idolatry. As Christians we know full well that there are things in our lives that sometimes become more important than they should. They may not be images made of stone or wood, But if we examine our own hearts, there's a good chance that we will find idols everywhere. For some people, the idol is sport. Who watched the rugby last night? No one. Good. All Blacks won last night, I think. Is that right? Someone's got a South African top on over there. Brian, commiserations. But for many people, sport is an idol. They live and breathe sport, whether it's cricket or rugby or tennis or footy, AFL. Uh, The last two weeks, some of you would be aware and some of you wouldn't, that it's been the AFL trade period. And it's basically the time of year where where players actually trade from one team to another in exchange for one another or for draft picks. Now, for for many people, they don't care about that. For other people, it becomes a big thing. And I must admit that in the last couple of weeks, I've looked at my phone for updates probably more often than I should. But I do have an excuse. The excuse is that I barrack for St Kilda. And St Kilda never win any premierships So in the season, there's no joy. When the season finishes, it's the only time we have any sense of hope. And so I'm excited about the trade period. And this particular trade period, we were chasing a star player from the Essendon Football Club. His name is Jake Carlisle. And I was really keen to get him. He's a key position player. We need players like that. And eventually, late in the week, we we heard that St Kilda had got Jake Carlisle to their club. And we we were about to celebrate because we beat Hawthorne at something. Can't beat him on the field, but... They wanted him as well and we got him and so we were really excited and as we were about to celebrate, a current affair came on and it shows us that Jake Carlisle a couple of nights before snorting white powder up his nose. You don't know if you've seen the movie Dumb and Dumber. There's Dumb and Dumber 2 and there's a new one coming out called The Dumbest and that's Jake Carlisle's life story. Just can't believe you could do something so dumb. But it becomes obvious that if it, sport is an idol and if we put our faith in A, anything that comes from Essendon, and B, sport, 
it will ultimately betray us unless you barrack for Hawthorne who win the premiership every single year. It ultimately betrays. And so if we put uh, any sort of hope in that for fulfilment or joy, it will always let us down. Maybe for you, sport's not an idol. Maybe you're part of the AFL like my wife, the anti-football league, and so sport isn't an issue for you. Tracy's nodding her head. She's part of that group as well. Um, But maybe it's not sport for you. Perhaps it's money. Maybe it's career. Maybe it's relationships or fashion or body image or popularity or pleasure or hobbies. These are some of the things that consume so many people and so you can fill in the gap in your own life. And so let me try and do today what Paul did when he went into the synagogue and that is to reason with you today by trying to elevate God. God is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is beyond our comprehension. He is greater than our imagination. We can't even imagine how wonderful God is. He is strong. He is powerful. He is almighty. The Bible says he holds the whole world in his hands and yet this same God who is big and powerful, this same God is love. He is pure, untainted, unconditional, holy love. He is incredible in every way. This same God who is powerful, this same God who is love, this same God is sacrificial. This same God became one of us, willingly dwelling amongst us and ultimately laying his own life down for us. This same God embraced the effects of sin, our sin, so that we could be set free from it. This same God not only embraced our sin, but he embraced death dying in our place, rising from the dead and guaranteeing that in him we will defeat death as well. And this same God stretches out his hands and he says, I love you. He says, anyone who calls on my name will be forgiven. Anyone who calls on my name will be saved. Anyone who calls on my name will have eternal life. Anyone who calls on my name will have relationship with God the Father. The same God loves you and he loves me and he wants relationship with us. And so when we compare to him all the glory, all the wonder of who he is, when we compare even the most amazing achievements in our life, they start to look pretty small. And so why is it that we so readily worship created things but not so readily worship the creator of all things? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. The things of earth will become strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Idolatry is still a huge issue in our world today and even as Christians we need to own that because it's so easy for things just to creep into our lives that slowly take the place of God. And whether we know it or not, we end up worshipping those things. They are the things that we spend most of our time, most of our energy, most of our thoughts, most of our affection, most of our hope goes into those things. And so I wonder today if there are things for you and for me that have crept in that need to be put back into their rightful place so that God can be once again on the throne of our lives. Paul was greatly distressed because the city was full of idols. And so as Paul finishes in the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, he then goes into the marketplace. Now the marketplace is really the equivalent of going into our local community. And it says there he engaged with people. And as he went into the marketplace, 
He found all sorts of different people, different worldviews, lifestyles, backgrounds. And there's two particular um, philosophies that are mentioned in this passage. He says he, meet, he met up with the Epicureans and the Stoic philosophers. Now, the Epicureans were a sect of people who believed that life was all about the pursuit of pleasure. Kind of sounds familiar in our world today, doesn't it? They thought that pleasure was the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. Life was all about tranquility. No pain, no trials, no hard work. It kind of sounds like a teenager. Their philosophy was that life, this life, is all that we've got. So we've got to make the most of it. For them, death was final. They had no hope after death. A lot of similarities in their worldview with the worldview we encounter today. And most of us would know that life isn't quite like that. Life isn't always easy. It's not always about pleasure. In fact, sometimes there's no easy way to say it. Life sucks. We live in a fallen, broken world where terrible things happen. And so even as Christians, there is no guarantee for us that we will live an easy life. But unlike the Epicureans, we have the hope of eternal life. We know that this life is not all we have. Thank goodness it's not all we have. We look forward to the hope and future we have in Christ, the hope of eternal life, where there'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more of that stuff that makes this world so difficult. We have the hope of eternity. So he met the Epicureans, but at the same time, he met these Stoic philosophers. And they were a group of people who believed pretty much the polar opposite to the Epicureans. Instead of pleasure being the chief end of life, they believed that self-denial was the key to life and that instead of enjoying their passions, they should suppress all of those things and have control over all the appetites of life. In their worldview, Zeus was the creator of the universe and they believed that their soul wasn't immortal but existed until the destruction of the universe when it was either destroyed or absorbed into some sort of divine essence. And so for them, life was all about chance and it was all about fate. Now, like the Stoics, we believe also in the principle of self-denial. God calls us to lay down our lives. Jesus said if we're going to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves, pick up our cross and follow him daily. And so we believe in the principle of self-denial. But unlike them, we also have the hope of eternal life. And we also believe that in all things in life, God has created so many of them for us to enjoy, for our enjoyment, for our pleasure. And so when Paul goes into the marketplace, these are some of the dominant worldviews and some of the environment that he finds himself in. And we can just take a moment to realise that there's actually great similarities to some of the worldviews we find as we go into our local community today. And so there's no surprise that when Paul went into that place and started to talk about a creator God who died for the sins of humanity and was resurrected from the dead, that he was ridiculed by many people just as we are. In verse 18 it says, Some said that he was a babbler. Others said that he was advocating foreign gods. Some said he was bringing strange ideas to their ears. When we seek to engage with people, we too will encounter all sorts of different beliefs. Some will be atheists, some will be agnostics, some will argue from scientific terms, others will be from other faiths such as Islam or Hinduism or Buddhists. And so the question for us is how do we take this gospel good news into a community where there's so many distractions, so many idols, so many other things going on? Well, I think this passage today gives us some really good practical keys to help us engage with people and to share the good news of Jesus Christ in a way that is real, 
authentic, respectful, and meets people where they're at. And so I want you to notice today from this passage of Scripture that there are four key things that Paul does that we can learn from when engaging with people in our local community. The first one is this, that he met people on their own turf. Verse 17, said he reasoned in the synagogues with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace, day by day with those who happened to be there. This series has been all about being on mission. And we've talked about the idea that it's easy for us just to kind of sit in church and wait for people to come to us. And it's easy for us to do that because we've done it for hundreds of years. We've relied on being attractional. But there's another option which I think is much more effective and that is that we need to learn to be people who are missional. I want you to notice that Paul didn't just sit and wait in the synagogue. From there he went into the marketplace and he met in his local community. Now, I get the sense today that some of you guys are falling asleep. So we're going to do some church aerobics. I'm going to ask you if you can to stand up with me this morning. Look enthusiastic. Come on, this is an aerobic class. Let's get moving. All right, what I want you to do is I want you to stand up and then sit down. All right, stand up. Sit down. Peter Brown, you're cheating. Stand up. Sit down. Very good. All right, stand up again. Don't complain, just do it. Now, I want you, while you're standing, to take a step forward. Step back. Step forward. Step back. Okay, you might want to swing your arms. Step forward. Step back. Very good. Step forward. Your hands up. Good. Yeah, very good. Forward, back. Excellent. You guys are getting the hang of this. This is really good. All right, got the heart pumping, got the blood moving. All right, you can sit down for a moment. Now, I wanted to do that to get you moving this morning, but to help you remember what I'm trying to get across today. Now, you are sitting again now. And what I want you to hear about sitting is this, that we don't want to be a church that just sit here and wait for people to come to us. We don't want to be a church who just sit here comfortably waiting for people to walk in those doors. We need to wake up. People aren't growing up in Sunday school anymore. They're not flocking to church on the weekend. They're not holding on to biblical worldviews. And if we just sit here and wait, we're going to have very minimal impact on our community. We don't want to be people who just sit and wait. So stand up again. We want to be people who stand. We want to be people who stand for truth. We want to be people who stand on the Word of God. We want to be people who, who go this way and that way, depending on what society says is right or wrong, what is politically correct or not politically correct. We want to be people who make a stand for what we believe in. That's who we are. Follow Baptist Church, we're going to stand up for what the Word of God says. We're going to stand up for Jesus. We're not ashamed of the Gospel. So there's a power of salvation to save every person who believes. So take a step forward. You're taking a step forward because not only do we want to be people who step out in faith as we become missionally, but our posture is that we want to step towards people. We want to engage with people. We want to love people and we want to step towards them. And so this morning we are doing that physically to demonstrate what we want to be as a church. We want to engage with people. You can sit down again. For the last time, I promise. Or do I? For those of you that sacrificed going to the gym to come to church today, well done, good and faithful servant. You got your reward. For those who deliberately came to church to avoid the gym, God sees what you're doing. You can hide, but he will find you. From time to time, we will have outreach events at church and they're a wonderful thing to do. We'll run alpha courses. We'll do all that sort of stuff. And it's great to invite our friends to it. But what I want us to realise today is that the bulk of ministry, the majority of ministry happens as we walk out those doors, as we engage with people, as we meet them on their own turf. This week, Cheryl Searle popped over to our house 
and she looked really excited. And I thought, what could be she be so excited about? Well, she's not having another kid, I'm sure. John's already told me that's not going to happen. And so what is she excited about? She was glowing. And as I asked her, what, what are you so excited about? She was telling me about how she's connected with some people at the local supermarket. And over time, she's just said hello, she's smiled, she's got to know their name, and now she's set up a, a coffee meeting with two of the ladies from the supermarket. And she was incredibly excited about it. You know, us Christians get excited about the smallest of things, weird things, but wonderful things. And it's exciting because it's the start of a relationship. And we don't know where that relationship will go in terms of faith. And that's what makes this kind of lifestyle so exciting. We're armed with the greatest news of all time, that Jesus saves. We're armed with the gospel. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We know the Saviour who holds the key to relationship with God. And there's no greater joy or privilege than being used by God to be in people's lives to lead them to the point where they accept Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And what I want you to see from Cheryl is that sometimes that journey actually starts just by a smile or a hello, or a hi, I'm Luke, or a whatever. Those little things are so important because we just don't know where they will lead. There are so many people that are lonely and isolated and they just want to find someone who cares. And as we engage with people, as we meet them on their own turf, we don't know how God is going to use us. But maybe it's for you it's in the workplace, journeying with the people that you see every day. Maybe it's in your family, in your friendship circles, or just in the circumstances of life. We are slowly, softly launching our small group network here at the church. And our small groups are called MCGs, not like the cricket ground. They are missional community groups. And what we're going to do in these community groups is we're going to live by the BLESS principle. We've explained this a couple of times, but BLESS is an acronym. Begin with prayer, B. L is to listen to people. E is to eat with people. S is to serve people. And the second S is to share our story. And so every time we gather as a small group, the first thing we're going to do is have a time of testimony. And the question is going to be, how have you blessed someone this week? How have you prayed for them? How have you listened to someone? How have you eaten with someone this week? How have you served them? Have you had an opportunity to share your story? And the reason we're doing that is because we don't want our small group network to become insular and clicky and inward focused. We want to grow in our relationship with God. We want to be discipled, but discipleship is only really discipleship if it flows outwards. And so as groups, we want to be people that are always looking outside of the four walls of the church. We want to be people who meet people on their own turf. The second thing Paul did is he observed their culture. Verse 23, For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. So important to know a culture if we want to reach a culture. A few years ago, I had the privilege of uh, pioneering a mission trip that happened two years in a row up to the very north of Australia. And we jumped on a plane and we flew to Darwin. And we got to Darwin, we took a light plane about three hours towards Papua New Guinea and we stopped at a place called Arnhem Land. Now Arnhem Land is at the very far north of Australia and we stopped at a place called Elko Island. And there we worked at a school which at that time was the most remote school in Australia. And so we flew into Elko Island and we arrived at the airport at a place called Gullawinku. Now, Gullawinku is on the edge of nowhere. And so we got to the edge of nowhere and we jumped in a four-wheel drive and we drove three hours till we were in the middle of nowhere to a place called Gawa. And for the next two weeks, we, we worked there serving people and it was a wonderful experience. 
But I want you to picture this for a moment. We fly into Gullawinko Airport with a typical uh, bunch of 15 to 20 white Melburnians. And we land at this airfield and the only people there are Indigenous people. There are not another white person to be seen. And we get there and the first thing I did is jumped off the plane. I wanted to connect with these guys. So I went over and I tried to shake their hand and look at them and say hello. And they didn't want a bar of it. They didn't, they, I don't know if they see many white people, but they, they weren't that interested in connecting with me. And they kind of looked at me very warily. And so we jumped in the four-wheel drive and we headed for Gawa. Now for two, two weeks we... Uh, served there. We did a whole lot of practical stuff. We built things. We uh, taught English. We did games with the kids. We supported the teachers and it was a wonderful time. And part of our trip was that we got the opportunity to sit down with some of the Indigenous elders to hear their stories, to observe their culture and to just get to know them in a greater way. We even got to try mango swamp worms, uh, which I would thoroughly not recommend to you unless you like hard snot and then you'll probably really enjoy them. Um, Not much fun at all. But while we were there, one of the things that happened is that they gave us um, a tribe name. On Elko Island, there are two tribes. There is the Dua tribe and there is the Iringi tribe. And so we were all given a tribe name. I was a Dua. Uh, that was my tribe name. I was the Dua people. And uh, also, as part of it, we were given an animal name. Uh, I was called the Dumbalingo. Um, <laughs> sounds a bit like Dumb and doesn't it? I don't know why. Uh, maybe they knew me well. But I was called the Dumbalingo, which is a blue-tongued lizard. Now, I'm not sure why they chose that, um, but they did. So, I was a blue-tongued lizard. One of my friends was giving me a hard time about that, but he was given a name that meant kangaroo. I can't remember the name because we just called him roadkill from that point onwards. (laughs) That shut him up pretty quickly. But when we finished our two weeks on Elko Island, we went back to the same airport at Gullawinka and we met the same people. And something really interesting happened. As I went to engage with those same people who rejected me just a couple of weeks earlier, I walked up and I just said one word. I pointed to myself and I said, Dua. And all of a sudden, half of them went, Dua. Yeah, Dua, Dua, yeah, Dua, Dua. Hugs, high fives. It was amazing. I was one of them. The other half went, Aringi, Aringi. No, 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 no. And then my friends were like, yeah, Aringi. And so they went over and had their little tribe meeting over there. And it was amazing. And then I said, Dumbalingo. And they just looked at me and I went, Dumbalingo. And then they just cracked up laughing. But that was a great joke. But all of a sudden I could connect with these people. Why? Because I'd had two weeks observing their culture, hearing their stories, learning about them. I want to say this morning, it's the same in our culture. If we're going to engage with our culture, we need to be experts of our culture if we're going to actually reach people. As we came to Plant Follow Baptist Church, we did a really thorough study of the officer area. What is it now? What's it going to be down the track? We we heard that the officer will have the most zero to four-year-olds, a lot of families, a lot of young people, And so as we planted the church, we planted that with all of that in mind. We want to be a church that attracts all ages, but we're always going to be bent towards that demographic because that's mainly who we're surrounded by. As Christians, we often struggle to know how much to engage with our culture. The Bible says that we're in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And often in the faith, I've seen people work between two extremes. One extreme is that they are so in the world, some Christians, that they're actually no different to anyone else. No different in the way they speak, no different in the way they treat people, no different in the way they live their lives. The only difference is that one goes to church on a Sunday and the other doesn't. But the other extreme, we see sects such as the exclusive brethren or the Amish, and their solution is to completely withdraw from the world. They just want to withdraw from the world because they are too worldly. 
And so they form communes and exclusive little communities and they isolate themselves from the world around them, never really having any impact for the gospel because they never meet anyone who's not a Christian. Now, I don't think any of those approaches are biblical. I think as we look at Paul in this passage today, we see a more biblical approach. Paul was observing the culture around him. If we're going to make an impact in this community, we need to know our local community. We need to get on their turf and we need to observe their culture. What's important to people in this area? What makes them tick? What are their interests? What are their joys? What are their struggles? What are the needs represented that we can help with? How can we connect with people and share the gospel in a way that they will understand it? Paul observed their culture. The third thing he did was this. He found common ground. Verse 22. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. So what was there that he had in common with the people around him? He was religious and he saw that they were also very religious. As Christians, we're called to be different to the world around us. We're a light in a dark world. We are radically countercultural. But in many ways, we still have much in common with people in the world around us. And so we need to work hard to find the common ground. I heard someone preach once on culture and they were talking about how we as Christians should engage the culture around us. And I found it really helpful. They said there were three things, all starting with R, that we should do when it comes to culture. The first one is that there's aspects of culture that we should receive. There are other aspects of culture that we should clearly reject. And there's a third thing, a third lot of things in culture that we can redeem for the glory of God. Let me give you three really quick examples. One of the things I think that we can receive with thanksgiving, because it's a gift from God, is the gift of coffee. It's known as the Christian drug. And uh, we love coffee. It's something we enjoy. And we go to cafes and we have coffee and it's, it's a great thing. Uh, at a previous church I was at, when I arrived there, the foyer was pretty empty. And so one of the first things I did in my role was we bought cafe tables and chairs and we had a coffee machine put in and, and uh, after a little while, that same foyer that was empty and bare and kind of cold and dark became a place of vibrancy and life where people would come and connect and have coffee together and get to know one another. And I remember one uh, day, midweek, um, one, of the, one of the people from church walked in and she looked at the foyer and she said, I don't like it. I don't like it. It's too much like a cafe. And I remember saying something like, oh, I'm sorry you feel that way. On the, on the inside, though, I was going, yes, because that's exactly what we want. What do people do in cafes? They don't just drink coffee. They connect with one another. Relationship goes deeper. And now on a Sunday morning in that church, we have a, a culture happening where people are actually getting to know one another and love one another. And so we can receive aspects of our culture and use them to connect with people. There are other aspects within our culture that we need to clearly reject. Um, I would use pornography as an example in this regard. Pornography is 100% legal. It's completely accessible, far too accessible for anybody now. But as Christians, we know the damage that pornography can do in people's lives. We know the damage it has on sexuality and relationships and addictions and exploitation. And so pornography is something that as Christians, we would say, no, we would reject that because it's a distortion on this wonderful gift called sex that God has given to us to enjoy within the covenant relationship of marriage. And so pornography is one area of the culture we'd say, yeah, a lot of people do that, but we're going to reject that part of our culture. But then there's other parts of culture that we can redeem. Uh, sex would be one of those things, that we redeem it and use it as God has designed it to be. Money is the same. Uh, music is the same. You know, you listen to the radio and you hear the lyrics and some of the songs and they're pretty woeful, pretty woeful lyrics. 
and, and our kids are singing along to them and enjoying them, but the, but the message behind them is really quite detrimental. And yet this morning, you've seen us use music to redeem that gift that God has created for us and actually use it in a way that it will glorify God. And so there are aspects of our culture that we can receive, that we should reject, but also that we should redeem. And so we need to find those areas of common ground, the things that we can receive and redeem so that we can connect with people. The fourth and final thing is, and I'll finish with this, is that he used, Paul used what they already knew to point them to Jesus. Verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you're very religious. For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I am going to proclaim to you. And so Paul is walking through the city. He's greatly distressed by the idols, but he's meeting people on their own turf not withdrawing himself from society. He's observing their culture and then he's finding common ground and starting with what they already knew to point them to Jesus. This is a great strategy. And in this case, um, Paul goes on in the rest of the passage to explain who Jesus is and who God is. And it's wonderful, but in this particular situation, Paul actually used one of their idols to do it. How phenomenal. He took one of their idols to this unknown God and he said, I'm going to use this idol to point you to the one true God. And you know what? There's so many opportunities for us to do the same thing. For many people, Facebook is an idol. For many people, sport is an idol. Money is an idol. Career is an idol. But by the way we engage on Facebook, by the way we engage in sport, by the way we live our lives within our career, we can actually demonstrate to the world that while those things might be an idol for them and we see them as a gift from God, they're actually not of ultimate importance. But we can use those things and engage with those things to point to Jesus who is of ultimate importance. So I want you to notice in this passage, he didn't take those things and worship them. We so often worship those things. No, no, he took that idol and he used it to share the good news. And in verse 32 it said, the result was that some sneered, but others wanted to hear more. In verse 34, some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. And I want to suggest to you this morning, as we engage with our culture, we'll have the same results. Some people will be excited to hear and they'll respond and give their life to the Lord. Some people won't be interested at all. Some people have a little bit of interest. But as we step out and be missional people, we know from this series that we go, we, three people are listening, we sow and God grows. Very good. We go, we sow, only God can grow. As we continue to meet people on their own turf, as we observe and understand our culture, as we strive to find common ground, and as we use what people already know, to point them to Jesus, I believe we will be the people that have opportunities to share the life-changing news of Jesus Christ and have an impact on this region and the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that it's challenging, that sometimes it makes us uncomfortable. But Lord, we thank you also that it's so down-to-earth and practical. Lord, I thank you for a guy for Paul, like Paul who made a decision that he wasn't going to sit and wait. He was going to stand for what he believed in and he was going to go. And he was going to step out and love people and engage people. Lord, I thank you for what you did in his life. And Lord, we uh, anticipate in faith what you're going to do in our lives, individually and as a church. Lord, we want to be a people who lift up the name of Jesus over this region. You are our vision. We want to follow you in our community for your glory. So Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you help us to do that? In Jesus' name, amen.